HEC Breakthroughs. A knowledge at HEC Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to HEC Breakthroughs, our monthly look at our business school's latest research. I'm Daniel Brown, Chief Editor at HEC Paris. In today's podcast, we look at activist short sellers, these controversial hedge funders that some are calling the new Robin Hoods of the business world. For that, we turn to... I'm Hervé Stolovy. I have been faculty member at HEC for um, more than 27 years, uh, following 11 years at ESCP. I teach financial accounting and I, my research topics are fraud, accounting fraud, fraud cases. And uh, through fraud cases, I, I decided to work more on whistleblowers. And from whistleblowers, uh, I went with uh, my colleague Luke to work on short, activist short sellers and short sellers. So my name is uh, Luc Pogam and I'm an associate professor in the accounting department here at HEC Paris. And I've been working um, previously on mergers and acquisitions, valuation, and more recently on uh, corporate frauds. And I share many uh, research interests uh, with uh, Hervé. That's why we work together on uh, corporate whistleblowers and today's topic, uh, activist uh, short sellers. Michael, how are you? I found something really interesting. The whole housing market is propped up on these bad loans. They will fail. The housing market is rock solid. There's some shady stuff going down. All the banks were having a big old party. A few outsiders saw what no one else could. The whole world economy might collapse. I'm sure the world's banks have more incentives than greed. You're wrong. An extract of The Big Short, Adam McKay's 2015 movie looking at the subprime mortgage crisis that started in 2007. This take on the housing bubble is an example of how short sellers operate, many in the belief they are blowing the whistle on nefarious activities in this sector. At the heart of short seller operations are reports which scrutinize the activities of companies they suspect of wrongdoings. For years, professors Hervé Stolovy and Luc Bogam have been analyzing the narratives of these reports. As we'll hear in the next half hour, they link these narratives to linguistic tools dating back thousands of years. Hervé and Luc also describe to us their unique exchanges with three of these short sellers, people who rarely reveal their operations. Our academics used to call them the new whistleblowers, but as Hervé explains to us first, they had to revise their vocabulary. Why? Because we thought and we found that these uh, activist short sellers in their activity have some similarities with um, whistleblowers because they bring to the public some uh, bad behaviors of firms. The problem is when we presented the first versions of the paper, uh, we are very surprised to have a very, very strong reaction from the audience. Many, many people in the room thought that these activist short sellers cannot be qualified as whistleblowers. Why? Because they have a heavy private interest. They make money with a stock price decline. So that's why in uh, subsequent versions of the paper, we removed the term new whistleblowers. Luc Bogam, have attitudes both in the public and in the media evolved towards uh, short sellers, given the fact that, as your research proves, that most of their allegations of fraud and corruption turn out to be correct? 
I think that among the public and among uh, regu some regulators, the first sort of instinctive reaction to short sellers is to dislike them. Okay, they benefit if a firm has a decreasing stock price. How can that be a, a business model? So they don't like them. Same with whistleblowers. People don't like uh, whistleblowers. They prefer to shoot the messenger, right? I think nowadays with Wirecard, maybe that will change a little bit. Uh, Wirecard was this German company who uh, was basically had 1.9 billion euros of fake cash on its balance sheet. And the com it's not clear what they did, but at the end of the day, they claimed they had uh, some money they didn't have. It was basically denounced as early as in 2015 by activist short sellers and uh, investigative uh, journalists. What's up, guys, and welcome to Wall Street Millennial. On this channel, we cover all things related to stocks and investing. Short sellers have developed a bad reputation over recent years because they often end up losing billions of dollars for their investors. But every once in a while, they end up uncovering a real fraud and make spectacular investment returns. Wirecard is one such example. In this video, we'll take a deep dive into the Wirecard business and how Jim Chanos made a $100 million return by calling its downfall in 2020. Your research focuses on how these short sellers use language uh, and age-old rhetorical devices. I'm talking about some that go back over 2,300 years ago. And you reveal this through analyzing narratives that are used by the six top uh, short seller hedge funds and their 400 research reports. Hervé Stolovi, could you walk us through uh, your research approach? Yes, yeah, so when we decided to work on these uh, research reports published by these activist short sellers, we wanted to focus a lot on credibility. So we read these reports, we felt that they use a lot of arguments to show that they are credible people. But then, reading more and more research reports, we discovered that there are many, many elements which could not be related to credibility. For example, the use of humor, jokes, pictures, images, and also sometimes the reference to the fear, the fear against executives, fear against companies. An so, example of, of this, of these tactics? Yeah. You know, for instance, regarding uh, fear, they, they might try to argue and to convince investors that whatever company is collecting data on people and that data could be shared, for instance, with convicted felons, for instance, that would happen to be working as a subcontractor for a company. So investors may have the feeling that, okay, clients are sharing their data with that particular firm and the firm is not taking good care of the data or protecting the customers. And in that case, well, you wonder whether the value of the firm is really uh, should not be estimated downward and whether you should not sell your shares considering the situation. Another example, they often refer to the executives of the target firms and they explain that the, the executive of these target firms had already passed fraud experience. So they, they explain that these executives of these target firms are bad people, uh, in quotes. Do you have any idea what you just did? You just bet against the American economy. If you're wrong, you can lose it all. The banks and the fraud of the American people. Now we can kick them in the teeth. Okay, here we go. We saw that there were some elements related to emotions. And then uh, also, of course, logical arguments, technical arguments. So then we had the idea to refer to Aristotle's rhetoric because Aristotle's rhetoric has three pillars 
uh, ethos, pathos, and logos. And we're talking about a philosophy that was born 2,370 years ago. What made you think of uh, this parallel? Because often you say it's unconscious. Yes, it is unconscious. Uh, if I remember um, when we had the idea to work with uh, Aristotle, I think that we were simply searching on the web with the keywords, credibility, humor, emotions, and suddenly, suddenly, this framework, this theoretical framework came up from the research. So we read more and we say, well, wow, this framework is perfectly adapted. And then we decided to use it, to, I mean, of course, to check it. So uh, Luke and I both read, we shared all the reports for reading. And the more reports we were reading and the more we were convinced that this framework works very well. Luke, could you give us a few examples, these rhetorical tools of uh, ethos, uh, logos, and pathos? What do you mean by them in these reports? We've talked a little bit about ethos being about credibility. So the idea would be, for instance, to demonstrate that through companies you've worked on before as, a, as an activist short sellers, you've already, for instance, demonstrated that a number of firms you, you've been targeting that there were actual frauds that were subsequently delisted or they were fined by the SEC or things like that. So that would be one strategy. Another one would be uh, pathos. And then you would, for instance, like we said, you could try to explain why the, the public should feel that company existing simply, or you could try to make fun of the company because humor jokes are something that work very well in people remembering commercial. We see that in advertising a lot. For instance, I remember a picture that was posted on an activist short seller's report of the compliance officer, and that was a person wearing a mask in bed with a woman who was also uh, wearing a mask, and uh, that was the professional picture of that uh, officer in that particular listed company. And they were making fun of the picture, saying, that's your compliance officer, uh, good luck finding fraud or whatever. So, so it's, it's very uh, something that you remember, that, that I will remember in 10 years, basically. So very effective. And then, as uh, Hervé mentioned, logos is about a logical demonstration. For instance, I remember this case, uh, this company, the, the audit fees were very, very low. Therefore, there was this allegation that the company overstated its revenues. And uh, if you looked at the actual audit fees that were paid, which are proportional to revenues, something was wrong, and that was the claim that, that was made. Well, uh, we're going to talk now about a negative report by activist short seller Spruce Point Capital Management driving shares of oat milk maker Oatly lower yesterday. Spruce Point's uh, report alleging Oatly has overstated its revenues and gross margins. It also claims that the company has engaged what they call greenwashing or giving the impression that it's more sustainable than it actually is. We should tell you that CNBC reached out to Oatly regarding the claims and received this statement that they are aware that a short seller is making what they say are false claims and misleading claims regarding the company. This short seller stands to financially benefit from a decline in Oakley stock. The impact is huge. They might be very small, these hedge funds, but for example, in the studies that you've looked at, there's an average of 11.2% drop in their share prices just in the first three days. And we're talking about more than $400 million of market value being lost by these companies. And the media plays a role, and that's also a second part of uh, your research. You study how the messages of uh, these uh, activist short sellers are interpreted by the media and the investors. So what do you discover, uh, Luc Pogam? So the idea was to uh, look at the media to understand which arguments 
were really effective at convincing investors. So when we looked at the stock price, uh, we looked at the first three days and the next uh, subsequent uh, six months, up to a year, I think, we realized that the impact was super large and material uh, on the target firm and on the other investors. But we really wanted to understand which component of the rhetorical strategy of the narrative that was produced by those activist short sellers was working. And we thought about focusing on the media, because at least journalists, they usually explain or they can talk about certain aspects of a case, right? Uh, For instance, whether the pathos, so emotion-based arguments were at least convincing some of the journalists that something was wrong about the firm. And surprisingly, we found that Of course, logos-based arguments were repeated by the media, but also some of the jokes and some of the emotions. So it really showed us to some extent that the rhetorical strategies were working. I can provide uh, numbers. For example, feelings of humor, the role of humor, were present in more than one half of the articles that we read. Okay, So that's uh, one element. The elements related to ESOS, about expertise, a little bit less than one half of the articles mentioned some elements linked to expertise, which means that journalists were not only focused on logos, on numbers, but they were also interested in pathos and ethos. Yeah, um, you're working on an article at the moment or a series of articles? Uh, well, we're working, a company we covered pretty closely, Blue Sky Alternative Investments, which was a stock market darling until... Glaucus, which is a US uh, research group, published the, a short report and sent the share price tumbling. And on Monday or, or Tuesday, they um, uh, went into receivership. So that is kind of like a, a big moment that signals the end of Blue Sky. And as reporters, we tend to kind of use that as a, a marker to look back at, at what happened and how Blue Sky collapsed. So, so clearly ago, your kind of, research results show that the media were impacted and echoed the Aristotelian narratives of the short sellers. Yet, at the same time, you've also found examples of ambiguity in the media approach. For example, the Australian Financial Review, when they were covering the Glaucus versus Blue Sky Company scandal, there was a lot of scepticism of the journalists uh, towards the short sellers and their approach? Yes, among the uh, about 4,000 articles that we read, we found that in 66% of cases, we had negative elements against activist short sellers. Why, Luc Bogan, why? So I think it relates to two factors. The first is that, and it's a good thing, is that journalists need to show that they're neutral. So they can't just a sort of uh, say, okay, this short seller is saying this, it, it's correct, or we are, we are going to accept the allegations. So they usually try to say, okay, there is these arguments that are put forward by the activist short sellers, but at the same time, they may be wrong and they make money if the stock uh, goes down. So we're going to explain it to you so that you, you form yourself your own opinion. Another factor is that uh, at the time the article, the, the media writes about uh, the cases, Uh, They don't know. They don't know for sure whether the fraud is actually correct. Because 
there is this possibility and that's exploited by the target firms that are attacked by the activist short sellers that you know you have auditors you have uh, enforcement agencies you have the securities uh, and exchange commission in the US and all of those actors usually don't say that the firm is a fraud so journalists sometimes they don't know and so they prefer maybe to hedge a little bit their position even though on average activist short sellers were more often correct than incorrect about the cases You interviewed three of these short seller leaders and uh, they gave insights into what they thought of themselves and their own roles. It's not quite the image that the critics gave of these short sellers, just money makers or vultures or whatever, but they had quite a different vision of themselves and their roles. Uh, Elvis Tolovi. Yes, we were surprised and really, f I think, fascinated by the three activist short sellers that we interviewed. They have a very, very high opinion, not on themselves, but of their role. First of all, to be able to have access to them was, I think, a great achievement because uh, some of these activist short sellers are secret people or they are used to be secret people. So uh, when they accepted to be interviewed, then we we're very first very happy to be able to talk with them. And then, for example, we interviewed Daniel Yu, Dan Yu, he's the activist short sellers of Gotham City Research. And he used to be anonymous, but then a few years ago, he decided to reveal his name. So when you speak with him, he explains that he doesn't qualify himself as an activist short seller. He says that he prefers to talk about himself as a man of free speech in capital markets. Okay, so he explained his history that he was uh, so much disappointed by the collapse of Lehman Brothers during the financial crisis. And he was also so much disappointed by the lack of reaction of the U.S. government that he, he decided to have this activity. So when you said these people are sort of Don, Don Quixote or Don, Don Quixote, but I think they truly think that there are these people. I think I'd like to add that when you engage in whistleblowing and when you denounce fraud, there is a big problem of incentive. Because usually if you do it as a, as a regular whistleblower in a, an organization, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose probably uh, your career, some of your friends, you're going to have some, some problems maybe in your family because your, your relatives are going to say, why are you doing this? And activist short sellers have this particularity of having aligned interest in terms of financial incentives and something that sometimes is related to the common good because basically uh, denouncing wrongdoings is something that uh, is beneficial to, for, for society. Of course, that also creates some, some sort of, at least a perception of conflict of interest because people are going to say, well, you have an, a financial incentive to uh, bring the stock price down. And therefore, uh, if, you, if you do that, then, then why should we believe you? But at the same time, you know, fraudsters also have a, an incentive to bring the stock price up by engaging in fraud. So that argument, you know, can go both ways. Activist short sellers are sometimes blamed for a practice named short and distort, which means that you pick a firm randomly, you attack it. And of course, because you attack it, you hope that the stock price will decline and then you make your profit using the principle of short selling. But the activist short sellers that we interviewed, they explain that first they, they really do not do short and distort. And to convince us, they said that there is a very big reputation issue at stake for them. They say that if they do that once or twice, 
their reputation will be will be uh, brought to a zero, and then I mean their career <laughs> we will end. So so for them it's not when they attack a firm they work a long time on each firm and then they release their report. And something we've checked is whether the effect on the stock price was short term or long term, and we found that basically the stock price continued to drop after a few days after the allegation. So if the allegations were really incorrect and it was a, a, a short and distort scheme, then you would observe the stock price going down and then going up. And what we did observe is actually it went down further and further down. Some of the firms were uh, bankrupted, some of the firms were delisted, some of the firms were uh, suspended from stock exchanges. So it's really not consistent uh, with a uh, short and distort uh, scheme. This research is part of a narrative economic perspective that you've been focusing on for years. And you say that it helps us to better understand the complex of financial markets. Uh, what do you mean, uh, Luc Pogan? We have this idea that, and, and we're not the only one to have this idea, is that, that basically the role of narratives have been underestimated in uh, financial markets. And it's very important in, in economics and also in financial markets. Therefore, by focusing on the rhetoric used by activist short sellers, we try to basically to, to understand better how ideas are spread, resonate in different stakeholders, and create new financial markets or new equilibrium in financial markets about the price of certain securities, for instance. And that's really something that is very interesting to us. And we see that, for instance, with the GameStop episode and the fact that the, the company that had not super solid fundamental in terms of business went considerably up, where actually basically the idea was uh, that some investors were driving the narrative. Dan, who do you think is, is selling GameStop this morning? And what, what do you think the trigger point was? Well, the, the short interest coming down. Uh, is, is definitely part of the trigger point. And you, you have to understand that many of these passive in investment vehicles are kind of like a Robinhood platform, right? They, they're free. If you are in this passive investment, it's free, but you have to know that we make money lending shares. So being in GameStop for that reason made a lot of sense to these free passive investments, free to the end user, because they made enormous fees on GameStop, right? The, the borrow rate was huge. Uh, and, this and research on policing um, financial markets is part of your general interest, both of you, in regulations and watchdogs. And before this publication on new whistleblowers, uh, you worked together on old whistleblowers, if I could say, on the more classic ones. Um, Luke, where did this interest uh, come from? We teach financial accounting, and um, there are a numbers of... Uh, very uh, well-known frauds in financial accounting, uh, Enron, WorldCom, etc. So we were very much interested into those frauds because that's what sometimes we teach, we explain to our students. And in many of those frauds, they were discovered by uh, whistleblowers. So we learned about uh, Cynthia Cooper at uh, WorldCom, Sharon Watkins, for instance, at Enron. Uh, or Ari Markopoulos, as Harry uh, mentioned, for the Madoff Ponzi scheme. And those old-school whistleblowers, we realized that they did something incredible, incredibly hard to do. They blew the whistle against uh, all odds, and they sometimes successfully, sometimes not, brought down companies for the public good, because those companies were basically 
uh, hurting society, but they received little from those experiences. They divorced, they lost their job, their careers, etc. And so doing this research, we discovered the work of another form of uh, whistleblowing, activist short sellers, and we thought that, yes, they are different actors. Yes, they have a sort of clear financial interest to bring the stock price down, but at the same time, the business model works and there are not that many capital market participants with actual interest in discovering and denouncing fraud nowadays. Because if you, you find a big fraud in your organization, the, the best thing to do is to say nothing. Finan from a financial perspective, is to say nothing, maybe quit your job and go work elsewhere, but not to blow the whistle on, on the fraud. And, and indeed, uh, there is real dangers in, in an important paper that you co-wrote also. You show how they are important to the corporate world, but they are threatened. Is there a link in this uh, issue between the old school and new school of whistleblowing? In other words, are activist short sellers also putting their lives at times on the line? Yes, in some of the interviews, the um, activist short sellers who talked with us explained that um, they had sometimes a feeling of danger, that they were, um, they were following the street by uh, strange people. They were sued by the target firms, so they had um, litigation uh, procedures against them. So their life was complicated, and a very good example is Citron uh, uh, Research, uh, which attacked um, a Chinese firm uh, that uh, is in the press nowadays, uh, Evergrande, and they attacked in 2012 for a long time, uh, a, a long time ago, and they lost the lawsuit in Hong Kong, and they were barred from the capital market in Hong Kong following Cytron Research, the activist research, so following their research report. So several years ago, and recently, it appeared that they were fully right. It appears that this company, Evergrande, now is uh, almost falling into bankruptcy. So yes, these activist short sellers sometimes have a, a difficult life with the target firms. But um, these people these, uh, have a very strong character. Very, very strong people. How would you categorize the attitude of the SEC? I mean, after all, they should be the ones targeting these fraudulent companies or those who are uh, guilty of corporate malpractice or um, financial mismanagement or misreporting. Why is it uh, they're not the ones uh, attacking uh, the, these companies? And how are they responding to uh, these whistleblowers, both old and new? So I think it's a bit hard for the SEC to identify all frauds and to be able with their limited resources because they, they regulate thousands of corporations. So uh, finding and discovering all of the fraud cases for them is very difficult. I think that their behavior when they, they learn about the case, they usually try to investigate, especially if it comes from a reputed short sellers. And I think that's that's basically how they how they operate. If you analyze the main logos arguments in the activist short sellers research report, in fact, you find four categories. You find flawed business models, accounting fraud, overvaluation, and operating problems. So as you can see, accounting fraud is only one of the four problems. So in other words, the activist short sellers reports do not focus only on accounting problems, but in reality, they focus more on flawed business model. That's not the job of the SEC. HEC Breakthroughs, a knowledge at HEC podcast. Centric.
Which brings me to the latest installment of my long-running segment, Rich People, They're Just Not Like Us, Us Pay Taxes. The leak is the follow-up to the 2016 Panama Papers and is being called the Pandora Papers. And they show how the super-rich use shell companies to hold luxury items such as property and yachts. The people named in the leak are from across the economic spectrum, from the impossibly wealthy all the way down to the ridiculously rich. I'd like to turn to a more recent issue, and that is uh, last year's Pandora Papers scandal that was unprecedented in terms of uh, the, uh, the corruption, and they've named 130 uh, Forbes millionaires and 330 politicians worldwide. One specialist said that whistleblowing will need to be a key aspect uh, in terms of successful anti-corruption drives. Given both of your long experiences in this field, um, how do you see this going? I know it's early days still, but uh, Hervé Storovi, how can you imagine that this could be of interest in the future for you? Well, one way of having whistleblowing developing is to implement whistleblowers protection laws or acts. The problem we are currently facing is that a European directive has been adopted in uh, 2019. And as you know, all directives should be integrated or transposed into national law. All EU member states had until the deadline of uh, December 17th, 2021, so last December 17th, to integrate, to transpose this directive and almost no EU country has done it. So which means that the countries, at least in Europe, are reluctant to integrate in their national law, which is not the case in the US. In the US, whistleblower protection is much more developed. But what rights does a whistleblower have, and how did the federal law that protects those who point out fraud and abuse in government come to be? Joining me now is John Phillips. He helped author the modern-day False Claims Act which protects government whistleblowers. Thanks for joining us. So what was the, the design here when you came up with this act? If you saw fraud and abuse, that you would have a safe way to report it? Yes. I mean, the concern back in 1986 was the rampant fraud being committed against the government. So Senator Grassley, Republican from Iowa, was the sponsor of this bill. I worked closely with him to encourage whistleblowers, people who see and witness fraud against the government, which was rampant, that if you come forward, we'll protect you. And in this circumstance, you'll even potentially get some compensation if it's successful at the end. And here I'd like to finally turn towards uh, more domestic issues. Uh, you are HEC academics and you teach regularly here. How are students responding to your publications and your research in something which I think can capture their young imaginations, uh, Hervé Storovi? Well, I think that they are interested a lot when we teach the fraud cases, we must say that even in the first accounting course, in the first year of HEC, uh, we have included the fraud cases many, many years ago. We thought that teaching a fraud case is also one way to teach ethics in the accounting course. So, of course, they are interested. One difficulty is that some fraud cases are very easy from the accounting point of view. Some others are, are much more complex. For example, the Enron case is extremely difficult to explain for beginners. WorldCom is a little bit easier. And the one we teach at, um, at present is Satyam, which is an Indian firm in the IT business. It's very easy to explain. So one difficulty we face. Luke? I think because we teach, at least in, in, in certain programs, students that have no professional experience, 
They find it very fascinating that such large corporations can commit fraud and they are quite uh, surprised to learn that sort of the safeguarding procedures are not working or that the control system, the auditors are not seeing the problems, etc. And when you acquire experience, you realize that that can happen. There are many uh, thousands of, uh, of firms out there and of course some of them are going to be fraudulent. And not all control procedures are working, and uh, that's why we try to to teach them. A few years ago, I was teaching a course named Gray Areas in Financial Accounting. And the students had to make an oral presentation choosing a fraud case. So every time they were making a presentation, they had a question, and I also had a question for myself, is why do these CEOs from large firms, mostly large U.S. firms, who are highly educated people, who are wealthy people, why do they commit fraud? That's a mystery. And it's still a mystery when you pay attention to the personality of these people, you do not understand. Hervé Stolovi and Luc Pogam, uh, thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. HEC Breakthroughs. Professors Luc Pogam and Hervé Stolovi, who devoted three years to investigating the narratives used by activist short-sellers in their hedge fund strategies. Since then, they've devoted another three years to bringing to light the competing narratives between short-sellers and financial analysts. This research features in another breakthrough paper soon to be published by the top review Accounting Organizations and Society. We'll be sure to cover that study in the near future. Well, that ends this month's breakthroughs. Be sure to tune in to the next Knowledge at HEC podcast. Meanwhile, why not enjoy some of the previous editions on our website? This is Daniel Brown saying goodbye from the HEC Paris campus. Yep. 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 Yep.